Good day. This is Gary Kavanagh on The Week That Really Was for the first episode back after the Christmas break. John McGurk is unfortunately ill and in his enfeebled state, he couldn't stop me from taking his position on this podcast. I am here today, of course, with David Quinn, his co-host, but also with the former senior Irish diplomat, Ray Bassett. Ray, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So obviously, Ray, uh, you're perhaps most well-known to the public for your conversations about Irish foreign policy, particularly in relation to the EU. And we will get to that uh, later on in the episode. But I suppose just to open with, I thought we might touch on one of the the big foreign affairs stories at the minute, which is the death of the former Pope Benedict. David, do you want to open into this? I know this is something that you've been following quite closely. Yeah, well, I, um, I actually interviewed Pope Benedict or Cardinal Ratzinger as he was back then. In 1995 in Rome um, and of course it was a major interview he was a major figure even then and even then uh, so this is like you know 28 years ago um, what struck me was the huge difference between his media image and the actual man that was sitting in front of me for the interview because the media image was this is God's Rottweiler uh, the Panzer Cardinal uh, that he had been in Hitler Youth and was therefore a crypto-Nazi of some kind, um, that he was a harsh, draconian, disciplinarian type. Uh, so I go into the office in Rome. Uh, the building is uh, to the left of St. Peter's Square, as you face it. And actually, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, while it has this fearsome reputation, occupies simply a part of that building. And I remember how incredibly lax the security was. I was able to just stroll in and uh, wander around that I finally found where I was. Um, but I was ushered into uh, a room, which is basically a sitting room, um, and um, uh, the person who uh, brought me in was the future nuncio to Ireland, at the time, Monsignor Charles Brown. Uh, he became nuncio years later. He's now nuncio out in the Philippines. And then from the other side, you know, when I was sitting down, in comes Cardinal Ratzinger. And... Um, uh, very quickly, you know, it became apparent this is a courteous, polite, self-effacing, gentle, humble individual about a million miles away uh, from the media image um, of him. And, you know, when you're a journalist, you interview from time to time important people, but usually they're kind of clock watching um because they've got better things to be doing and usually they have tend to be interviewed by a journalist but for the hour i was there i had his full attention he listened to all the questions attentively he answered them intelligently because this was a really highly intelligent man and i remember at the end of the hour when i was being kind of led out of the room looking back and cardinal ratzinger cardinal ratzinger was clearing away the coffee and teacups himself um which again is not quite what you'd expect um then fast forward years until 2010 uh, so at this point he's pope for five years and he goes to britain on a state visit and again there was this incredible atmosphere of hostility ahead of him arriving um and there was even calls for him to be arrested because of the abuse scandals and again all the stuff about hitler youth which was compulsory was raised again and all the kind of god's rottweiler everything was raised again and then people saw him and they saw him on camera live and unmediated by the media and unfiltered by the media and there he was the person i met in 1995 this gentle humble courteous 
individual and people basically liked him and Irish people were able to watch all that live at the time and they saw a very different Joseph Ratzinger again from the one presented and this is kind of a constant theme of this podcast again and again there's a, a, a huge disjunction between what we're presented with by the official narrative and what's really going on and that to me was quite a dramatic example now this week he died at the weekend and he was buried uh, today so we're recording this on thursday evening there was a little bit of generousness or generosity of spirit towards him but not much because the stereotypes were raised again um uh, but nonetheless this was a man who was at great variance from the media image um, was probably the most intellectual pope that the Catholic Church has had in years. I think his writings will probably be remembered in the same way Cardinal John Henry Newman's were, that is, they'll be read in decades to come and, and uh, with great fruit by people who were interested in theology or moral issues, about church and state, uh, about where the West is going, about his Christian roots, because this is a constant theme of his, was Europe departing from his Christian roots. Um, and of course, he had a lot to say about Europe and the nature of, of Europe. And he also wondered about the future of the European Union. And at the time, there was a live debate about whether Turkey should become a member. And he thought not, because he thought that the members of the European Union should be the original Christian heritage country or become something quite different. So they were my thoughts um, on the week and his death. Ray, was did you ever have any any dealings with uh, with a, either when he was the the pope or as a cardinal, or was that in any way in your area? No, it it didn't. We we had dealings, obviously, with the Vatican, um, particularly on issues that uh, affect us, um, um, schools and various things like that in in, in Ireland. I didn't, but the, the, what struck me, I, I read a lot of archives um, as now that I've retired from foreign affairs. And it's amazing to read about the archives of the Irish uh, government's um, relationship with the Vatican in the 1940s, 1930s. And um, how far things have changed where the former leader of the largest religious group in Ireland, both in the North and in the South, it can be essentially um, almost airbrushed and very, you send along the ambassador to the, fu to the funeral and that it, it is a bit discourteous, I think. And I think um, a lot of the media coverage has been almost, um, you know, written to script. Like if, if Cardinal Ratzinger or Pope Benedict was uh, a nice guy, this doesn't fit in any way with what has been portrayed. It doesn't fit with the, with the narrative. And if it doesn't fit with the narrative, then the uh, media and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the people uh, in Ireland will not, will simply reject reality and put their own interpretation in to fit what they think it should be. Uh, and as I said, I, th I thought that, um, um, uh, you know, if, I, if we were if I was still advising in government, uh, I would have advised that. You know, at least uh, a political figure should have gone to the funeral um, now, uh, or even to offer to go to the funeral. But there seemed to be uh, a tendency to, you know, to to totally uh, distance ourselves from it. Now we've obviously improved since the time when we actually closed um, the Irish embassy to the Vatican, which was an extraordinarily um, foolish decision, in my view, uh, and um, done almost, uh, you know, as uh, in a fit of pique. 
But I think it does show um, how far things have changed in this country. And I'd advise people to, to actually read the archives of the Department of Foreign Affairs to see some of the exchanges in the 30s and 40s. And to be honest, we needed the change from then, but we probably didn't need to have such a radical change in our attitudes. But you know that if you go back to that time, um, uh, so Ireland is a newly independent state, and we hadn't got many prominent friends in the world. And uh, a very prominent friend was uh, the Catholic Church in the Vatican, because uh, it had a huge uh, worldwide reach, of course. And, um, uh, you know, it helped us. Um, uh, so um, there was no EU. Who are we going to lean on in Europe, particularly in those days? I mean, the 20s and 30s, this was not an easy time. Uh, America's far away. Um, so there's the Catholic Church, which we're obviously intimately connected with. So we needed a friend. And it made sense to cultivate the Vatican and the Holy See and vice versa. Um, so we got to put this sort of thing in context. By the way, in respect to the funeral, it wasn't a state funeral. So uh, the various states weren't invited to send anyone. Olaf Scholz went today. But mind you, I suppose he's the German chancellor and uh, Joseph Ratzinger was German. But there was nothing, as you say, to stop us sending somebody out anyway. Could have sent uh, Michal Martin as foreign affairs minister or something. But no, didn't do it kind of you know it's kind of indicative as you say of you know where we are now that we're just embarrassed by the association or the old association with the catholic church for both good and bad reasons i suppose as we're commenting on just in relation to benedict's public image how much that shows that the the power of the church has changed over time when you, you refer back to you know ireland as it was in the 20s 30s 40s that in the modern age a person like benedict who would have been, in, when you're looking at soft power, one of the most powerful people in the world, someone who millions of people care about the opinions of. And he was a, he was, it was possible to represent him so incorrectly and so one-sidedly without any real consequence. You see, part of um, uh, the issue with him obviously was uh, he was in charge of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. So that is the church's doctrinal watchdog. And he was appointed to that by... Um, Pope John Paul II in 1981. Um, and in that role, uh, his job was to kind of bring a little bit of doctrinal order back to the church, because in the 1970s, there was a free-for-all, basically. And it was all up in the air what was going to happen to church teaching, not just in issues like women priests or contraception and celibacy and so on. I'm talking about really fundamental things like was Christ divine? Did Christ rise from the dead? Did he found a priesthood? I mean, absolute core beliefs, not just of the Catholic Church, but of Christianity itself. Um, and uh, people weren't sure where all, the pieces, where all the pieces would fall from this great big kind of theological um, uh, turmoil which existed. Um, and John Paul II was very much about restoring order to chaos. And um, you know, Pope Benedict or Cardinal Ratzinger was his man to do that. And there were a, cert a certain number of theologians who were disciplined. Let you see, by the way, we go mad about that. Uh, but actually, when you look at political parties, they have discipline. They will withdraw the whip from a member who doesn't vote in line with the party. There is no, there is no coherent organization anywhere that does not have disciplinary proceedings, which it imposes sometimes. And to expect the Catholic Church never to do that is absolutely absurd. And when you think, about the way, and we'll be getting on to this um, shortly, the European Union. I mean, woe betide the country that falls out of line with the European Union. 
uh, and how rigidly those rules can be applied. And the EU has all kinds of doctrines that it doesn't want to change. And, and that came up in Brexit negotiations, like the total integrity of the single market, that the integrity of the single market must not be violated. And this is kind of held before the world as a kind of sacred doctrine. Um, so the EU is well capable of it, and the EU justifies it in its own case. And so, do, again, all organizations. I mean, remember in um, a number of years ago, Lucinda Creighton and a number of others had to, were expelled from the um, had the party whip withdrawn from them by Fine Gael by voting against um, the abortion law that was passed after the awful death of Savita Halapanovar. And everybody cheered that. All the liberals who condemned the Catholic Church for exercising discipline uh, absolutely cheered Fine Gael for exercising discipline against those TDs. So what sauce for the goose ought to be sauce for the gander? So suppose moving from, from the church onto Europe, but staying in this sort of vein of things that are not as they appear to be. Europe, for a lot of time, was presented as, in some cases, nearly a more serious, a more rigorous place than the Irish Parliament, at least in certain people's imaginings. So I suppose to, to start with, Ray, were you surprised at the recent corruption scandal that we've seen kind of rocked the European Parliament uh, involving Qatar and various allegations that money has been moving all over the place? Not in the slightest, because it's it's an open secret, even among the governments, that um, that um, things aren't as they should be in the Europe, particularly in the European Parliament. I wrote I, I wrote a book called Ireland and the EU post Brexit, and I outlined you know the fact that there's very little scrutiny in the European Parliament, even over a personal, uh, even over expenditure, uh, expenditure which is given for 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 purposes of of operating as an MEP. Um, they don't have to give individual receipts, don't have to give uh, details of it at all. And there was a general feeling that um, controls were lax. And also the European Parliament has has grown in uh, in importance in terms of legis uh, new legislative proposals and that. And, it, you know, the fact that you have the second biggest lobbying industry in the world outside of Washington is in Brussels lets you know that people obviously thought it was it it was it was um it was effective to spend money in in brussels and anyone who went to brussels and see the the sort of level of luxury that was going on clearly knew that you know people weren't in you know a lot of people weren't in brussels because they were you know um disciples of jean manet manet they were they were they were people who were doing very very well out of the out of the the whole operation and it, you know, for many years now, and you know, the British government in particular, and some of the others, and at times the German government have been calling for much greater scrutiny and much greater uh, looking look at how money is spent. But there's so many vested interests at the, the sort of level of the European Parliament that it's very difficult to bring in reform. So, uh, Gary, just to say, I wasn't surprised, and I don't think anybody was surprised who has who's had regular dealings with Brussels. We have the 50th anniversary of the EU. I know you're a man of strong views on it and who's familiar with how it operates. How do you think things have gone for Ireland and the EU as a whole, given that this is now such a significant anniversary of it? Well, it is a very, very significant anniversary, and it's one of the biggest events which obviously occurred in, in the relatively short uh, history of, of, of the Irish state. I, I, you know, we joined the European Union because we had no choice whatsoever. As as, as T.K. Whitaker said, it would be would have been catastrophic 
to have Britain inside the European Union and Ireland outside, given that about 50% of our trade at that time was with the United Kingdom. Uh, and we would not have, and this is something that's often forgotten, we would never have got into the EEC unless Britain had lobbied for us. Uh, and the European Union, uh, or sorry, the European Economic Community at the time did not want really Ireland as a, a relatively uh, less developed um, uh, country on the western edge of, of Europe with um, not, not huge amount to give to the European Union. In fact, Whitaker and several people, and this is clearly seen in the archives, decided that the way we were going to get into Europe is we were going to be more, almost more European than anybody. And they were almost given lectures as to go to around Europe and explain that we were an old European nation, which is true, and that we were very, very pro-European up in the 1950s uh, and up to the actual application for us joining Ireland and the Irish government had very almost no wouldn't say no but very very little interest in what was happening in 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 European developments it, it was the fright of of Britain moving in to Europe and the possibility that we would be left outside particularly where our cattle trade now I believe that we did the right decision I think that for, I I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1978 and I immediately worked in the European Union or the EEC, I can, the, the name keeps changing. I should go back to the original name uh, from, in 1978. And I was very heavily involved in the organization of the 1979 um, presidency, which brought Margaret Thatcher and um, uh, Mitterrand and various people to Dublin. So I believe the early years of our membership of the European Union were very, very beneficial. I believe that the support we got from uh, from um, some things, things like the regional fund, the, uh, the structural funds the co and, and convergent funds were very, very useful in, 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 in helping to, to make us into a modern, successful economy. Uh, I, I think the European Union started, uh, the, Euro the, the European project started changing when we started introducing new elements into it in the treaties like um, Maastricht, um, Lisbon, Nice, where we moved beyond having a, a, a mutual um, assistance, if you like to put it like that, and, and cooperation between nation states, and where the desires of the people to create a kind of federalist system um, came in. And the federal system, federalist system, unfortunately, is being run by a, a group in Brussels, which are not answerable to the to the to the um, to, to the electorate. They're they're appointed by the governments, and I think. The nature began to change. I think economically, it's still very, very beneficial for Ireland to be part of the of, of the single market. But I regularly attack the government um, for this idea that we have to be the most European uh, of, of nations. And if the Commission brings in a proposal, the, the we automatically support it unless there's a very, very strong reason. Uh, um, not not to do so. And I think that was particularly um, seen in Brexit, where, you know, I didn't want to see Brexit occur. But once Brexit, once the British, go, uh, number one, I wanted the Irish government to actually work with the British government, particularly David Cameron, about getting some um, a, 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 a compromise, which um, Cameron could sell to the British public. Now, I'd been involved in the Good Friday negotiations and had been dealing with the British government for many, many years with many, with many, many scars and also many, many friendships. But I thought that we took a stance at Brexit 
uh, which was very much against our national interests. Number one, it was very important to try and keep Britain within the European U Union. This isn't the run-up to Brexit and the run-up to the vote when Cameron was looking for yes, absolutely. When a he compromise came, he could when sell he looked, the when people. He came and he came and sent messages to Dublin for asking for our support in, 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 in having a, a, a break on immigration into Britain and several other areas. And we were very, very hardline. And I know because I was in, in those discussions and I just could not believe it how hardline we were being against Cameron. And I remember saying, this is far too high risk a strategy. If, 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 if they vote against uh, leaving, we're going to eventually suffer for it. Um, we still haven't seen that yet. And then when Theresa May came in, we, 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 we adopted a very hawkish and belligerent tone all the time and, uh, and, and made it very difficult for Theresa May uh, 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 in, in her, her own parliament, we, we, we offered her a deal which couldn't be sold. And now we have a situation where we settled for a much less benign Brexit. And even Keir Starmer is now talking about a Brexit deal, which is way, way tougher than what Theresa May or David Cameron would have, would have, would have settled for. And I, as I said you know, to, to my colleagues, is that success? And yet you read the Irish newspapers and we are clapping ourselves on the back about how good we were. But the outcome, which still hasn't really worked itself out, was exactly what we didn't want. And yet we seem to think we had a success. Now, I, I, I do concede that Leo Varadkar has started the, the gradual retreat by saying mistakes were made on all sides. But if you you're, read... What, you're talking you're talking now about the protocol mainly, isn't it? Absolutely, David. And if you read some of the speeches given by um, Leo Varadkar or Simon Coveney in, in, in 2017 and 2018, I mean, they're, they're, they're horrific. You know, we are the stronger party. We will show Britain, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's the boss here and things like, you know, almost infantile stuff. And, you know, it didn't help the people in Britain who were on our side. It, it, it made life difficult. Now, I know Leo knows he has a huge image problem in Britain and in parts of the north of Ireland. So he's now beginning to roll back. But a lot of that was unnecessary. And we could have, uh, we should have act acted as a bridge between London and Brussels. We are uniquely placed for that. But unfortunately, we took a role of almost the cat's paw of, of, the, of the more hardline people in Brussels. To what extent, Ray, do you think we were doing that, taking the hardline stance of our own accord? And to what extent were we being put up to it? Well, there's two. There, there, I, I, when Andy Kenny was in, we didn't take anything like as hard a stance. I think Leo Varadkar has said publicly that his number one sort of philosophy is he's a European. He's he he has always been a federalist. He believes in a in a single state and as as the final destination of the European project. So I think he 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 uh, he. Um, was that, that that naturally? I also think, and you know, it's people in Britain who would not accept the result of the referendum worked hand in glove with people like Leo Varadkar and with Michel Barnier as a way of trying to thwart Brexit. Now, I, we have a long history in this country of people in our neighboring island trying to thwart our democratic wishes to, to become an independent country. I just didn't think we should be involved in similar activity inside Britain to try and subvert a, a democratic decision. Even if we didn't like that democratic decision, I thought we should have worked with the, pe with the, with, with the people in Britain who are trying to make it work. What do you think, by the way, like, I mean, the protocol is one of these fiendishly complex issues that 
I find it difficult to get my head properly around. Um, the way I understand it is, um, so they want effectively no border on the island of Ireland, economically speaking, or for any other purpose. So the border, therefore, has to go down the Irish Sea with customs um, checks at the Irish Sea and that kind of thing. And if they're not down the Irish Sea, they're going to have to be on the Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland border. And we don't want that for understandable reasons. And uh, both sides have dug in their heels and the unionists have dug in their heels. What is the answer, do you think? Well, I, I'd be very optimistic, David, that there are solutions coming up. But remember, you know, Northern Ireland has massively changed. And sometimes in the South, they don't, we don't get that. The, you, the, there are three groups in Northern Ireland. Two of those groups are very much in favour of compromise, which would be the, you know, make up 60-something percent of the population there. The what is the compromise, though? The compromise is essentially what's going on at the moment. Um, uh, we're, you know, the, the, the outline of an agreement is, is basically there, that goods travelling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland that are staying in Northern Ireland travel through a green, a green line at, at the customs point and any goods which are coming south of the border into the single market would have to go through a, a, another area. And the green uh, line means they're not the green line, customs, like checks. customs area. You know, you've got the green, the green gate and the and, and the red gate. About eighty, about eighty six percent of goods coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland are staying there. I mean, say, we used often the the. So example. what's the issue then? I mean, the compromise seems so obvious. What's the issue? Well, the issue is that um, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party will not accept any checks. Um, are, are coming through, and the, you know you either have to have a check at the port or you have to have it on the border. Now, you know I've worked on the security side; it would be impossible physically to to to, to actually try and put a border back there. Because remember, the strongest Republican areas inside the north are all just north of the border. So the British government and the Irish government have looked at this and said, "Look, if you you know you can try and do it, but it'd be very very difficult, and you could ignite." trouble again so we've all accepted that we're not going to put a border on, on, on land so what the whole process and the whole negotiation at the moment is how do you you know make the the, the checks between great britain and northern ireland to to a minimum extent and at the moment the 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 the, the present system is working reasonably well economically and but they're symbolically uh, very, very difficult for the unions to swallow. But unionists have to realise they're not a majority in Northern Ireland. And if the worst came to the worst, why not have a referendum in Northern Ireland to say, would you accept the protocol? But I, I honestly believe that the present British government and all the, the feedback I'm getting from my former colleagues and, and, and also from London is negotiations are going well. The whole aim is to have it finished by, by, by the... 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and it looks like President Biden. And when is that again? Time. Oh, sorry, Good Friday. Uh, April, up Easter. April. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, what compromise, if any, will the DUP accept? Well, that's a very good question. Um, the DUP have said they won't accept any compromise, which I don't think. But Jeffrey Donaldson has been changing his line very. Um, you know, imperceptibly, because he's in a very weak negotiating position. Because obviously, the Labour Party, who look odds on to become uh, mm. the next government, are very much in favour of 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 of, an, uh, of some type of arrangement. And so, and clearly, um, 
Sunak is as well. So what they what we've got to do is make these checks so almost invisible that they that they'll be able to sell it to a section of their community. There's a section of the community will never accept it. Now you can introduce things like um, trust or trade trading systems. You can you can do electronic testing. I mean, already the European Union has access to the freight figures going to between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So they can obviously see what's going over there. So, you know, it's, it, the problem is minuscule, actually, uh, operationally. And I think, and I think almost everybody um, on, uh, uh, you know, on the custom side said it can be managed almost electronically. And if uh, difficulties arise, then you intervene in it. But the early days in the protocol, and this was partly in Leo, as touch, Leo Moradka has touched on this, we were very bloody minded about it. And we were demanding that every bit of goods coming into Northern Ireland should be checked by the customs. Um, and that was, you know, that was totally anathema to, 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 to the unionist community there. It's a strange thing to me that, um, so we're just 100 years independent, and then 50 years of that have been spent within the EU, that Irish nationalism, an Irish national identity seems to be defined purely versus Britain. Um, and that whole fight for independence was obviously a fight to become sovereign and independent from Britain. And that's the only way we define it. And there's no debates about um, how much sovereignty we must concede to the EU. We've all obviously conceded a lot in return for certain benefits. Um, but we don't seem to have any opinion about when we stop that process um so where do you think it's going ray like in terms of um further ceding of sovereignty and where does this train finally stop yeah i think th i think there is a, there's a huge reluctance in ireland and i know this from inside government and things uh, to have discussions in this area they all say we're in favor of full political and economic union but they never exp actually explain what that means it means ireland would cease having a seat at the United Nations, it would cease having embassies and all, and everything we hand over to the European Union. But nobody really wants that. Uh, but the that's the blueprint. I don't think it will happen because I think, you know, around Europe, you know, whether it's Italy, whether it's Sweden, whether it's Hungary, whether it's Poland, uh, you know, nation states are beginning to, to come back and say, you know, let, 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 let's let's go back to what we, we, we initially signed up to. And I think there is a growing a growing resistance to um, to, to to greater federal federalization. I mean, the the the, the main pusher of, of of a sort of federal Europe is Macron. And, um, uh, you know, traditionally, the French were actually quite strong supporters of the nation state um, and. I think Macron is kind of the last of those those very very pro European, and um, I shouldn't say pro European because I'm very pro European myself, but a pro, pro uh, centralized uh, administration in Brussels. I mean, it's amazing that the left for always were used to be in favor of national liberation. They used to be in favor of local democracy, and yet they're the strongest people pushing for greater powers to be transferred to Brussels. Straight to transferred to Brussels means you don't, you're, you're taking decision-making out of the hands of people uh, who are directly affected by these decisions. You see, to go back half a step um, and the whole business about our 50th anniversary, I was reading various articles about it during the week and all the benefits of joining the EC, and it made Ireland a modern 
um, prosperous country. Um, and it, it definitely helped. But uh, there was a lot of mixing up, it seemed to me, of causation with correlation. Uh, because as if we'd have stayed where we were in 1973 and not moved at all. Um, so one of the things, for example, that was mentioned was the marriage bar, which happened to go in 1973, but was going anyway. But we, so, but we associated with joining the EEC and therefore with modernization. And, the, and the, like the two other countries that joined at the same time as us, Denmark and Britain, were already prosperous compared with us by then. So neither of those countries associates their um, prosperity and modernity with the EEC which then becomes the EU. Uh, and neither of those countries, obviously not Britain, but Denmark um, also are nowhere near as Europhile as we are because of their history, because as I say, they were you know, doing well, relatively speaking, in 1973 compared with us. So I think that's a big part of the issue here is um, we were such a poor country in 1973 and then we began to prosper and we totally associated with the uh, EC slash EU. And, like what I also notice in these debates is um, you're not allowed, if you criticize the EU, it's assumed you want to leave it. Yeah. It's a very strange thing. It's a bit like if you criticize um, our parliament, the Oireachtas, you're somehow anti-Irish. But nobody says that because it's completely legitimate, obviously, to ask questions about where your own country is going. Uh, nobody thinks you're anti-Irish because of that. So it should also be allowed to ask questions about the EU and to criticize it without it being automatically assumed that you want to leave the EU. Absolutely, David. But there is a fragility and the government and pro-European, pro-federalist know that, that, you know, the, 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 the kind of blueprint is not in the people's sort of mind. And I, if you ask Irish people, they're, they're quite strongly in favour of, 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 of the EU. But it's off, these, a lot of these surveys are carried out by organisations partly paid for by the Irish government who have a vested interest in telling how, how pro-European you are. And it's interesting to see the, the, the position of the various questions, in other words, that are going to influence the, the answers further down. But you're quite right. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, as I say, looking up um, past events Ireland in the 1960s was already on a trajectory for, 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 to, for a more modern economy. I mean, if you look at 1965, and I'm just reading some of the archival material from 1965, there was a, great, there was a much greater sense of confidence then. Sean Lamass was in, was in power. Growth rates were about four, between four and five percent. Ireland was, was started its negotiations to have the free trade agreement with Britain that, you know, and the biggest change in Ireland, I believe, was Don O'Malley's um, 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 reforms. I mean, I, I, I'm a beneficiary of it myself. It's the free secondary school Free education. secondary school. And, you know, the, the whole upskilling of the population, you know, the fact that education was taking off, the technical colleges were building. There was a lot going on. And I have no doubt that the Euro, en entry into the Europe, the EEC accelerated that. But we were on our way anyway. And uh, where we would have ended up, I don't know. But... You know, people sort of sometimes write off that nothing happened of any consequence before 1973. Just look at some of the statistics from the 60s, as I say, where the country was it had it had woken up from almost Rip Van Winkle, Winkle type sleep and was 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 was, was forging ahead uh, economically in the 60s. It had a lot of catching up to do, but you know, just as I say. The, 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 the bad decade of the 50s was behind us. And, you know, the population was rising in the 60s. People forget that. And uh, as I say, education levels was, were, were coming on and we had a, a strong pro progressive government under Sean Lamass. And by the way, I mean, Irish prosperity 
didn't really begin to get going until the 1990s. Because of course, 1973, that's the oil crisis. Um, we had high inflation, high interest rates, high unemployment, um, emigration kicked off again. The 1980s economically were basically a write-off. Um, so the first uh, 20 years of membership of the, of the EEC, actually, we weren't becoming prosperous. Um, it, was, it, was, it was later that we began to get our act together. And then, of course, foreign direct investment and all that kind of thing. So this is kind of forgotten. Why weren't we becoming prosperous during the first 20 years? I mean, if the EU is the sole answer, then we should have begun. We should have begun to become prosperous immediately. We didn't. Yes, but if we're making a mess of things locally, partly. David, there's such a consensus about it. You know, I occasionally get invited to um, universities, uh, societies, and I was invited down to Galway, and I began to realise very soon after that I was invited down as a freak show. You know, <laughs> well, I, welcome I, to my world, right? Then I, I started saying about you know we're a net contributor to the European Union, have been for ten years you know, the cost of the bailout. And some of the students started arguing with each other about why aren't we being taught this in our European studies course? And okay. Said, yeah, so, you know, the, the, you also got to remember that there is very little media um, diversity in, in terms of, you know, whether, you know, questioning some of the fundamentals of, 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 of what we do in Europe. Like, I don't think we're going to, move outside the European Union in the foreseeable future. But I'd love to see a reformed European Union where there was much greater power to, to, um, uh, devolved to the member states who made, made their own mind. It shouldn't be one size fits all everywhere. By the way, um, uh, you mentioned looking through the archives in Ivy House, the Department of Foreign Affairs, and um, you know, going back decades, um, the obsequious attitude that would have been um, this is my perception in Ivy House and among diplomats towards the Holy See. Uh, but if I'm correct, and again, looking in as an outsider, it seems to be that obsequious attitude has been completely transferred within Ivy House from Rome to Brussels. Would that be fair to say? That's fair to say. When I was talking about the archives, I was I was intrigued by how much the Irish government was interfering and in trying to get various appointments to the hierarchy and various things like that. You know that we had our we had um, our, our our representative in 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 the Vatican basically lobbying for certain churchmen as well. So it was both ways. Mm. It wasn't just interference uh, in 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 the local affairs here, but also that we we were essentially unashamedly lobbying for uh, to, to get certain people positions within the Irish Church. But you're, you're quite true. I remember. You know, I would I worked because of Northern Ireland. I worked very closely with a lot of politicians, and you know, I actually got to like them and all them. When and because I was dealing an awful lot on with sort of organisations in the north that many of the others were dealing with, I had a certain degree of freedom. And I remember one uh, minister just saying, "Ray, you're fine, but don't say that. Don't say that. It'll threaten your career. You know, we might agree with you, but you can't." So yeah. that's the that's the that's the level and. I, just as I said, David, I don't want to be rabbiting on, but I was doing an, an interview with the Irish Times, and at the end of it, the, the journalist in question, who I won't name, scratched his head, and it is a he, and he said, I can't use this because our paper has a policy, and if I put this in, it's totally against the policy, so the interview is scrapped. Well, there you go, you see. I mean, and I could, I mean, it's the same on issue after issue, and it was the same in the past, except we had a different view. Uh, it was sometimes the polar opposite of what it is now. So it's just flipped over and, uh, and uh, a new consensus has replaced the old consensus, but it's just an unquestioning. So the commonality is 
we just do consensus and we do one consensus at a time. And if you step outside of it, you are in trouble and your career could be in trouble. And that's a really, really unhealthy situation for any society to be in. And we keep doing it over and over and over again and demonizing anybody who simply asks questions, which should be allowed in any healthy democracy. Oh, and as it should have been asked done in the past about the dominance of the church here, but now should be asked about the dominance of any number of views in this country about any number of issues. But the same view is allowed on one issue after the other, leading to this kind of groupthink that's been talked about many times. Yeah, absolutely, David. I agree 100%. And, uh, you know, it's it's unhealthy if if we don't have um, the occasional um, siren voice in the, way, in the wilderness saying, you know, let's get back to first principles. Why? Why did we actually adopt this? You know, our our our, our real our, the real attraction for the European Union for us is the single market, and it's for American investment. But at the moment, you've got Macron talking about bringing down a curtain on trade between the Americans and ourselves uh, and and the Europeans on the basis that the Americans are now favouring made in America. He wants to start favouring made in Europe. That would be fairly disastrous for us because we've we've received we receive a disproportionate uh, amount from, uh, of of U.S. investment and our the, the linkage that we are that we represent between Europe and the United States is vital for us. If if you know that, that either in Washington or in Brussels people start talking about um you know stopping that free trade and stopping the the, the 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 investment levels and onshoring, then we could be long term in find our well, business model will not work. Well, imagine so Ireland currently is uh, stuck in the middle of a fight between Brussels and London, taking the Brussels side. But if also there's going to be a fight between Brussels and Washington, then what the hell are we going to do? Because our two main trading partners will be in a fight for Brussels. Yes. Um, so where does that leave Ireland? I think it leaves. I, I think um, all politicians tend to have a very short-term outlook on the basis that you know, as one politician said to me, my first duty is to get re-elected. You know, I, I explaining something, and he said, "said that's fine, but my first duty is to be re-elected. I'm not re-elected. I'm nowhere." So I think they are not facing up to some of the more longer-term uh, trends. Which you know, which I mean, Cormac Lucy's writing about this regularly in the Sunday Times. Mm. The need for us to develop a sort of a, a second string to our bow that we need to, and even the even uh, people from the International Monetary Fund have warned Ireland about this over reliance on uh, on our corporate taxation and uh, you know, as we say, euphemistically saying, have a competitive rate of taxation in Ireland, you know, that that is under threat from both Washington and probably much more directly from Brussels. You see, what I say is uh, Cormac Lucy for Taoiseach and Ray Bassett to be Foreign Affairs Minister. <laughs> that would be my dream. I'll take the job. <laughs> Gary Kavanagh, you've gone very quiet. <laughs> Well, you know, I I am a guest here, David, just as much as Ray. So I, I thought I would let you take the lead. There was one thing, actually, Ray, I did want to ask you just before we close up. You were talking about uh, Ireland joining the EU and how the UK had been lobbying for our interests. That, from what I understand, carried on for a considerable amount of time. We seemed to position ourselves as often we didn't have to argue against things that we didn't like because we let the UK do it. 
And we could then present ourselves as very lovely and not argumentative. And it seemed like there was a very good working relationship with British diplomats for most of Ireland's history since it joined the EU. During the Brexit process, when I started talking to um, British diplomats and British politicians, both during it and after it, that seemed to very much change. And what I was particularly uh, shocked by was that the British seemed to develop a personal animosity towards particular Irish political figures, uh, mostly Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. And from talking to them, they seemed to take the stance that you know, politics is politics and diplomacy is diplomacy. Negotiations will go certain ways. But they seem to be of the opinion that those two figures particularly had gone beyond what was required politically and were now acting in a fashion which they seem to think was nearly malevolent, designed to maximize harm to them. I'm just curious if that was your read of the situation. And if it was, what do you think the actual policy there was? What what were they trying to achieve? I'm not sure. I mean, I've tried to understand what would drove the, the Irish policy in uh, immediately after, after Brexit. I know they were very disappointed in the Brexit result. And I also know that they were assured fairly strongly internally that Brexit wouldn't would be defeated. So they got they were completely on the wrong foot right from from day one. I think there was also a fear that um, the European Union might insist on a land border in Ireland, which wouldn't be essentially we wouldn't be able to implement it. And uh, therefore, there would be barriers thrown up in the Celtic Sea between the island of Ireland and mainland Europe. So I think there was a degree of fear in it. But and I thought that the part of the reason behind, you know, where they went way over the top, uh, much worse than than politicians anywhere, apart from a few in France, was a desire to sort of keep the Europeans on our side. Um, I think it was a wrong strategy. I think if the Irish and British governments had got together and produced a compromise and went to Brussels with that compromise, even if it broke many of the sacred cows in Europe, it would have been, and particularly with the backing of Washington, it would have been very, very difficult for Brussels to, to say no. And they could have monitored the situation and, 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 and do it. But I, I also fear that, uh, feel that, you know, the, 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 Leo Varadkar seems to um, have a particular dislike of some of the, of, of the Tories and, 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 uh, that's the impression I got. Maybe I'm wrong about about Leo on that. But I think the strategy was, no matter what we do, we keep him at Brussels. Now, if Brussels asks us to sort of jump off the cliff, we do, because without Brussels, we'd be lost. Now, I don't think that was a good idea. I think we should have gone to London and, and, and acted sort of as, you know, as in go-between. So we would sound ideas off in London and sound off ideas in Brussels. The net result is that we've destroyed the pro-EU part of the Conservative Party. It doesn't really exist anymore. We 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 have discredited, you know, the 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 the, the kind of John Major um, um, strain in 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 the, in, in uh, the Conservative Party. My only um, my only rash the only rationale I could see is that they decided at all costs to to um, support Brussels. But you don't you don't have to go overboard. You know, it's, it's an old saying that says, you know, less said sooner mend it. And I think they went out of their way every, everywhere to, to 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 say that. The other point I'd say from my own time and spending in Northern Ireland, and I, I, I'm an unashamed United Irelander, 
But I believe that the fact that they were showing absolutely no uh, understanding or sympathy for the unionist position, you know that they can't have a border on the, on the island of Ireland, absolutely out. But you're, you, there's no problem having a border in the Irish Sea. Now, under the Good Friday Agreement, we're supposed to act in, 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 uh, in an even-handed way. And also another clause of the Good Friday Agreement promises that Ireland and Britain will act as friends and partners. I think we broke the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, having been involved in, in the drafting and, and, and that, I, I felt that was a completely wrong uh, move. And I think it was partly because all the people who were involved in Good Friday and the negotiations with Tony Blair, both political and official, had moved on. And we had a new generation there who didn't really understand the benefits of, of you know, working both with Brussels and with London. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly goes some way to explaining some of the confusion that happened during the Brexit uh, process. I mean, there were times when we would sign a deal, uh, it would go to the Commons, Leo would go to the papers and say, well, we gave them absolutely nothing. Hours before the Commons would go to a vote. And it was as if we didn't realise that the British actually exist and can read Irish papers and see what we're saying about them. And it seemed nearly designed to make it more difficult for them. But I suppose on, on that uh, bright note, Ray, we should probably wrap up. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to have you here. I very much enjoyed taking John's place, uh, although hopefully we don't make this a regular feature. Thank you very much, Gary, and, and thank you, David. Thank you for being on. And thank you for everybody to, for listening.